Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. I have said on this show before that Ray and Charles Eames have probably influenced my work and thinking in design more than any other designers. I have this very vivid memory of seeing a red molded plywood chair when I was in high school and just sort of immediately falling in love. I can't say for certain, but it's very, very possible that Ray and Charles were the first designers that I became consciously aware of. And what's interesting to me is that there are actually very few designers that I discovered back then who still hold such a space in my thinking. Regardless of where I am in my career, regardless of my creative or intellectual interests, the Eames seem to have always stayed relevant to me. And it's that, I think, that explains my love for them. It's that that explains why I find them so interesting. It's not about any single product or output or object specifically that I'm drawn to, though I certainly am drawn to those things. But it's really in their approach, their process, their thinking. So I was excited to learn about the Eames Institute for Infinite Curiosity, a new nonprofit that seeks to illuminate Ray and Charles's design processes so contemporary designers can apply those lessons from their work to the problems of today. You may remember last year I interviewed Sam Graw, the Eames Institute's chief brand officer, but today I'm delighted to be joined by their chief curator, Lisa Demetrius. Lisa, who also happens to be Ray and Charles' youngest granddaughter, has spent her life in many ways, and especially her career, in the Eames archives, finding connections, uncovering stories, and illuminating processes. In this conversation, we talk about her goals for the Eames Institute and what today's designers can learn from the Eames. But we also talk about how they worked, the value of multidisciplinary thinking, and how the couple thought through design problems, both design problems that came from clients and design problems that were self-generated. If you'd prefer to read this conversation, a full transcript of my conversation with Lisa is available on our Patreon. In addition to transcripts of every episode, Patreon supporters can get early access to episodes, bonus interviews, and a monthly newsletter filled with book recommendations, interviews, links, and other design news. We offer three monthly tiers at $3 for students, $5 for members, and $10 for superfans. Scratching the surface and much of my work is made possible through your support. So if you like what we're doing here, I hope you join us on Patreon. We have a great slate of guests lined up through the rest of the year for this new season of the show, and you can help support that and be a part of that. You can head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up and support the ongoing production of the show. It feels really good to be back after our summer break. I'm really excited about these new episodes coming up. Thank you. Thank you, as always, for listening. And here is my conversation with Lisa Demetrius.
You are the chief curator of the Eanes Institute of Infinite Curiosity. And I want to hear you talk about the second part of that name, the infinite curiosity. What does that mean to you? And how do you sort of think about this idea of infinite curiosity and how this relates to the Eames and the Eames's work and the Eames's legacy? I think because um, I have been working with the archival material that my mother inherited um, after Ray and Charles both passed away in 1978 and then 88, that in looking through it and you know working with curators and working with exhibits and just looking at the work both as a granddaughter and as a curator and as a registrar, that it was really fascinating to see how Ray and Charles solved problems. And when mom inherited the material, what she loved is it was the process of how they solved the problems. And so when the Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity was created, it was really a chance to unpack the way Ray and Charles work, the way they infuse their designs and lives with curiosity and what I call discovery at every turn. And so it's almost like the problems that they solved there were so many in so many different areas. One could really see how they approached the problem, the, the hands-on learning um, that they did not ever delegate understanding, the thoughtfulness that they approached these problems, and it's probably something you talked to Sam about. Mm -hmm. What was so interesting is like, we had the work in the collection to be able to show how they did it. So it, to me, what's important at the Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity is not just what Ray and Charles made, but how they made it. And what I mean by that is, for example, we have uh, prototypes for the airport tandem seating. And when you look at the project and you see the incredible chairs at the airports um, in many places still today, what, you, what we have in the archive and in the collection is the fact that you see the prototypes of the questions they were asking when they were designing um, the chair itself. Now, mm. when Ray and Charles were asked to design those chairs, they didn't just go design a chair. What they said is you talk to the person who's gonna buy your chair, but also the person who's gonna take care of your chair. And therefore they interviewed uh, maintenance teams at different airports. And they found some very important observations um, that the maintenance team shared with them which was the big problem was the replacement parts. See, Ray and Charles were never interested in just, they wanted to mend systems as opposed to replacing them. So, because there, obviously there were parts that were successful with the existing uh, airport seating. So what needed to be improved upon? And they said it was the replacement parts. And so what they said, the problems at that time were the back and the seat were two different shapes. When you went to the closet to go get the part, there was always more of one versus the other. They were heavily upholstered and took up a lot of room in the storage closets. And it would also take one or two people to take out the old one and put in the new. So if you look at the airport tandem seating today, the back and the seat are the same shape. It rolls up into a little tube. It takes one person and one right. screwdriver to unscrew two places and pop the old one and put the one new. So that's what I love sharing um, is, is, again, how they thought about this and there's so many examples to share. I, I, you, I think that's, I think that's a, a great example because it's, that is a chair that, you know, everybody knows that chair, even if they mm -hmm. don't know that chair, everyone knows, yes, exactly. you know, everyone has seen that. Um, right. And I'm, I, I've heard you describe this archive as a working archive. Yes. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you think think about doing that. And the reason that I ask you that question is because I feel like the Eames's work is so iconic. It is so known, but it's mm -hmm. so easy to see it just as the finished 
product and not as that process that you're talking about. And so how do you almost like, I don't even know, I'm not sure I have the language. How do you like complexify (laughs) that work? How, you know, how do you, how do you sort of show that so it doesn't get reduced to an, you know, an iconic product that you lose that thinking? What I love about this is when my mother inherited this material, the reason she kept everything that she was saving together was she felt each piece informed another piece, even if you couldn't quite see that connection mm. immediately. And so when the reason we call it a working archive is because Ray and Charles called the work that they made and had at the office that they surrounded themselves from past projects, um, new projects, they called it a working collection. And what mm. they meant by that and what always resonated for me was We have chairs that came from the office that might have a torn seat or broken back. But you know what? Ray and Charles kept those pieces because they knew where they needed to fix it for the next iteration. Mm -hmm. And what was so great about working with Herman Miller and Vitra was that um, they were open to improving the design as it continued to evolve. And you see that on the uh, EAM storage units, you see it on chairs, you see it on tables. And so it was never static. The learning always continued as the piece evolved. And so I always remember hearing from both Ray and Charles that after giving a talk or something, someone might come up to them afterwards and say, hey, you know, we have your dining, your chairs around our dining room table. And Ray and Charles would both be very excited about that. And the first question was like, well, how are the chairs doing? <laughs> like, are the chairs doing their job? Right. And and so if you, so there's two things that I, I think are really something I love conveying in the collection and where it really shows that it's working is that it's showing where, as Ray and Charles called it, that they the, the des- chair was never designed in a flash, but rather a 30 year flash. Right, right. It's keeping evolving and learning and, and even also being sensitive to the environment and the impact of the environment. I mean, Ray discontinued the harvesting of Uh, Brazilian rosewood when she heard of the impact on the forest and therefore it had to be a different wood and so it's not just a chair making it once it's mass producing a chair a hundred thousand times which is a whole other kind of way of scaling up Mm -hmm. Ray and Charles would say making something once is fine and idiosyncrasy you don't mind but if you're making it 10,000 times or 100,000 times, that idiosyncrasy is really going to drive you nuts. So you have to think of that way of scaling up, but also you had to be thinking of being producing it as sustainably as possible. And right. so that's another part that we share is as just as I keep learning and we're making discoveries in the collection, these are things we can share online, in person, in exhibits. And because I, I think it's something that everyone should be aware of um, and might impact their own work and how they approach it. Basically, what I'm hearing you saying is really interesting to me is that, yes, it's about the objects in the collection, but what you're actually doing, what you're actually interested in is uncovering the stories about those objects Mm -hmm. and uncovering the connections between those objects. So it's actually all the stuff between them. It's not about the specific prototype of whatever chair and what they learned from that, but it's how that chair led to the other chair or came from the chair before it. It's exactly true. And I think that my starting point on that was observing like, let's just say 1958. You know, Ray and Charles are working on uh, the idea of the Eames Aluminum Group, a piece of furniture that can be mm-hmm. indoor-outdoor. 
They're working on glimpses of the USA, which is bridging a communication gap with Russia with a multi-screen right, presentation. Right. They're also beginning to write um, the India report that will end up creating the National Institute of Design. And they're just about to start working on the ideas for the National Aquarium. Mm. And all of these, it, if you try to look at the comment, that was their normal. Okay, right. first of all, I didn't realize all I mean, of those were happening at the same time. Yeah, like I'm familiar oh, with all of those projects, but right. even just hearing that in the same year is sort of mind blowing to me. It is, and also they were hosting grandchildren. I wasn't born yet, but my elder <laughs> three siblings are visiting the house, and but but again, that was very natural to them, and and so then I try to think about like. What is a common thread between all of these? And, and one of the things is something else Ray and Charles talked about, which was opening doors to ideas. And that mm -hmm. was like for like the National Aquarium, how do you help somebody care about something they can't see, which is underwater? And that's because they were becoming concerned about the environment and toxicities in our water and in the earth and how to do better production. And so I just love that Ray and Charles would talk about um, the fact that, you know, when they designed an exhibit like Mathematica to excite the next generation of mathematicians and scientists with IBM, it wasn't to show everything. What you're really trying to do is show six to eight things that gets that person mm -hmm. excited enough to continue mm -hmm. that delving in and researching. And so part of what I feel like we do is like, I like sharing these learnings that I have had, and then I like seeing how that connects with people and, and guests that come here because then they carry it further. I love that it percolates in people's brains and then they come back and share their observations of connections. Right. And what Ray and Charles called that is really making the invisible visible, mm. which is just something I love. Yeah. It's making those intangibles more concrete mm. because today I just feel like there are so many challenges that we are facing that it's almost paralyzing. And to me, it's just fascinating to see how Ray and Charles dealt with many of the same issues um, at their time. I mean, we're still, as you said earlier, we are continuing that thread of learning. And so it just is, a, uh, it's wonderful to see how they did it. It's not the only way, but I think it helps the future, which is what I'm all about. Yeah, and I want to I want to talk about that a little bit more, but I want to zero in on on a specific piece of that Right now, because mm -hmm. you just mentioned when people come and visit you, and I, I assume when you talk about coming to visit, you're talking about the ranch, um, which is sort of home base for the the institute. Now, right. this is this is a, a ranch in Petaluma that your mother built. Did she build it to house the archive specifically? Or yes, okay. Because so so what happened is I grew up in San Francisco, okay. and um, and then when my mother. Uh, when Ray so I also just to give you a little background, yeah. Ray passed away when I was uh, 22, and Charles passed away when I was 12. So it was very exciting spending time with Ray and Charles at the office because they'd have each of us grandchildren go down and visit. And so, meanwhile, I had graduated from Yale and I was working at MoMA in New York um, in the Mies van der archive, handling after 10 years of other people's work of getting the 14,000 drawings published. And so, meanwhile, our mother. I think, you know, when, when she had shipped 750,000 images to the Library of Congress and also, you know, many pieces to MoMA, to yep, Vitra, Design yep. Museum and others, that 
she was very surprised when she walked back into the building and it looked like nothing had been taken. <laughs> Sam, Sam said the same thing. When I, exactly. Yeah. So, exactly. So, and so she felt like the library was very important because it's really uh, yeah. their research library. Again, another working collection. It's Google before Google. Right. She thought all the prototypes, yes, some had, you know, had gone to Vitra, but also there were many remaining. And seeing that iterative process, as especially in today's day with 3D printing, it's become even more important seeing that prototyping yeah, that yeah, Rand Charles did. Yeah. So again, it's it's sort of watching what people enjoyed, wanted to know more about. And I think where the nonprofit today comes around is because there was an Eames show um, that started at the Barbican and it ended up traveling to about eight countries right. and finished here in Oakland, California was the last venue. And for a lot of in the Bay Area, guests really enjoyed seeing, wow, like, I just know the finished piece. It's so right. fascinating to see all these prototypes. Right. So after it closed in, I think, 2018, that's where this notion came about, like, how do we share this in different ways? Do people visit us in person? Do we do more exhibits? Do we do publications? And that's also where I work with Sam is like how we communicate mm -hmm. this collection in mm -hmm. different ways. Now, my mother, yes, she did move the collection up to the up to the ranch in Petaluma. But what we've done now is we have moved the collection over to Richmond, which is on the other side right. of the bay, where I'm talking to you from now, while we do some renovations at the ranch. Because what there, what we'd like to do is take these ideas of conservation and preservation and apply them outside to the land. Yes, you knew, really... you knew exactly where I was taking this conversation. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> so, so that's what. So, to me, what's really I think one really can connect most with Rand Charles's work when you are participatory, when you can sit in a chair, you are mm -hmm. watching a film, you're learning from, thing, from exhibit. So what we're trying to do is apply what we've learned about sustainability from Rand Charles and think that way. And we're doing that outside at the ranch. And so there's this amazing connections now to me and it's, and it's solar panels. It's how we're using the irrigation and, and thinking about the plants that we, and the trees that are going to be planted. It's right. still the same footprint of the garden that my mom had when I lived there and I do, and I'm going to go back. But what's interesting is it's a whole other way of assessing and thinking more thoughtfully in connection with the environment. That's exactly why I was kind of curious to talk about the ranch a little bit. I don't want to spend too much time talking about, you know, the, that property specifically. But when I think about the Eames, I think about Cranbrook and I think about LA and Southern California. And so I was, I, I had a hard time sort of wrapping my head around why like, yes, I knew your your mother lived there and built it, but like, why is it here? How does this location change it? And I've, I've heard you talk about the ranch. You see the ranch as like a new case study program. And, and exactly. you, you, I, I watched a talk online where you did sort of an updated diagram of their what is design <laughs> diagram. And you yes. talked about the ranch as the intersection of agriculture, sustainability, and design. And I'm wondering if you can sort of talk about that a little bit more, how you see it as sort of like a continuation of the case study program, a new case study program, and then that intersection of agricultural sustainability and design and how that sort of updates a lot of these ideas that Charles and Ray were interested in. 
Well, I, I, I'm happy to talk about the fact that what we're interested in is cultivating people's curiosity through agriculture, mm. because it's an, an opportunity. It's almost like an outdoor exhibit of thinking through how we can design our way out of this situation that we have. Ray and Charles have an, there's an amazing quote. It's in Eames anthology about Lake Michigan dream. And I think this is like late fifties, early sixties, getting into the seventies where everything has come at a cost to our environment. And so what it is, is like, if you also think about that, that overlapping interest diagram, which is what that's from, what you just yeah, described, yeah. the point is, is that there are many circles that you need to consider. It can't just be like what you wanna do on your land. You have to think about how that impacts the world around you. And it's so it's different scales to think about. And I think for some people like are curious about what is carbon sequestration? What is using less water? And for us um, with COVID, what ended up happening is we could do all these data studies on how much we were using at that time, electricity, water, all of this, so that then we can show the difference when we uh, put these new changes in place. And it's also another thing is, is interest in restoring the creek, which is the boundary line of the property, um, mm -hmm. and, and which did once have um, um, trout in it back in the day and was a full-time running stream and oh, wow. thinking more sustainably about that. Um, and that would be working with, uh, with neighbors and yeah. thinking through um, just not just what's happening for us on the acreage that we have, but also with neighbors, the community, um, because as, as Ray and Charles said, eventually everything connects. Mm -hmm. And so this is just one of many ways that we're just trying to share the the design process of Ray and Charles and apply it. I mean, what's what's really interesting, I rewatched their 1972 film Design Q&A. Oh, that's a favorite. That was the first thing my mother, um, when Ray and Charles passed, I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, but go for when, it. When, my, when Ray and Charles first, when they passed away, the first project that my mother wanted to do was get that out because oh, yeah. she thought there, there wasn't, you know, Ray and Charles, it's really, it's through interviews, presentations that they did. There wasn't as much writing by them because it really was through their short films mm -hmm. that you can glean these great ideas. They shared it at many levels. And so she put it, it was like laser disc video. Yeah. Now we have it online, but that was just an absolute favorite. And I, I love that one. Of, of mine too. And it had a very profound impact on me probably 20 years ago when I saw it the first time, but I hadn't watched it in uh -huh. years and knowing I was going to talk to you, I watched it again. And I had no memory of this and I was so struck by it watching it recently knowing mm -hmm. I was going to talk to you the last question in that is what is the future of design and Charles doesn't answer and all we see is a I set of images of nature and plants and landscapes and I was like oh that's the connection to the ranch now like that's the embodiment of these sort of present you know current problems you know current solutions for for new problems I, I love that you noticed that because that is exactly where I want to pick up where they left off and show how we could do that today. And those are pictures of their meadow at the Eames house where many picnics were. Um, Ray and Charles at the house would let the meadow go dry. Yeah. It didn't stay green all year long. And it's, it's one of their favorite pieces of the property, which is why they redesigned the house, you know, to be set into the, into the hillside. And it, it's so for me, it's exactly what you said. That is the future of design. They did not answer the question. They did it visually. And as Ray and Charles also would say a, a, a picture, an image can 
be yeah. an idea. It yeah. can be a way of expressing an idea. So um, I, that's what that is exactly. Uh, I call it what we're doing is not a 2.0 version at the ranch. We're doing a 4.0 version. Yeah. And yeah. Um, really bringing some amazing people in and working together on this. I mean, it was so it was so obvious watching it now in a way that it hadn't been before watching that now and knowing I was going to talk to you. I want to talk a little bit about their work and their process and talk about some of these, these stories that, that sort of we're talking about. And I have some sort of, you know, maybe specific interest in their work and thinking that I'd, I'd love to sort of hear your thoughts on, you've talked a lot about, and they talked a lot about how they saw themselves as problem solvers. Um, and there's a, there's a quote from them where they, they said something to the effect of, I think of our work as essentially that of a tradesman. The tools we use are often connected with the arts, but we use them to solve problems which are assigned or we discern. And they've talked a lot about the first part of that, that quote about the idea of trades problem solving. I was really struck by the second part of that quote, the problems which are assigned or which we discern. And I'm wondering sort of how they thought about sort of the difference, if there were differences between whether they were sort of generating a project versus something that came to them. How did that change their process? How did they think about you know, sort of navigating both, um, you know, essentially clients and like self-generated research. Um, how does that come together for them? Well, Ray and Charles, yes, they, they addressed themselves as tradesmen. And the way they phrased it was that either they saw something that needed to be addressed mm-hmm. or somebody came to them with something mm-hmm. that needed to be addressed. And those were the only two problems that they solved. There's another great quote uh, by, by Charles, which is, we don't do art, we solve problems. Right, right. And so a great example is from the very first being together, married and working on these projects is Ray and Charles during World War II are working in about 42 on this molded plywood chair idea. Mm-hmm. And you might know the story. They go to a party and a friend of theirs who's a doctor is um, is telling them that soldiers being carried off the field, the vibration of the metal splint mm-hmm. is making the injury far worse than even just getting to the ambulance. So Ray and Charles said, we're working in wood. Maybe a wood splint could be possible. They developed that idea. By 1943, they're making over 100,000 of them for, um, the, for the, the Navy. And it's just extraordinary, like that idea of they're working on one problem, but they hear of another and can there be a way to solve it with what they're doing at that moment? But the main thing was, is that they also, there was also something wonderful said that all of the clients of, of the office were east of the Mississippi. So it took a while to get to the office. <laughs> so they could be working on the projects that they, they, I mean, they were always working on projects that interested them. But I think for me, it's like, I, I also think there were cases where somebody might come to them with a need and and maybe that wasn't the need and or they could build on the need that they were addressing and adding another layer and i'll give you an example of that if you'd like which is when alcoa reached out to about 20 designers and artists like what's this new material aluminum and what can Mm. we do with it um ray and charles made the solar do nothing machine which is absolutely marvelous. It does nothing and it spins and twirls and everything like that. But there's another message to it, which is what you see when you watch the short film, which is just a couple of minutes. It spins and twirls and then it pauses and you see it pan down that it's being run by a solar panel. Mm -hmm. 
And what they're really doing is introducing this idea that they're alternatives to fossil fuels. Right, right. So what I'm saying is like, that's why I think their work is so fascinating because you can see so many um, uh, ideas being approached and solved uh, all in just one chair in one film. And so there's a richness that allows it to percolate in one's head later and see these connections with other things they were working on in the collection. So I, I, I think it's like really fascinating that they could, this is going to lead to a question. They could sort of mm -hmm. be focused on a specific problem, but also have their eyes up enough for in these conversations at the dinner party or whatever, they can say, oh, that thing I'm working on that's completely different, you know, right. that is actually connected to to this. And I'm, yes. I'm wondering, like, did that, pro how do you sort of, how did they develop a process to be both focused on the problem at hand, but also sort of scanning the horizon for where else this goes? And did that, you know, how did that sort of evolve over, over time? So that for me gets back to why the, this, the, it is called the Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They were very curious about how they could help situations. Mm -hmm. And for them to make the leg splint was actually an opportunity to help the war effort without hurting anybody. So if you think about that, I mean, to have that level of awareness, but also their curiosity was boundless. I mean, it was incredible watching at the office where you, it, they also they would talk about things like less teaching, more found learning. Uh, so at the office, you could find a music box, a circus mirror that came from the IBM pavilion from the 1964 World's Fair. You could find a piece of furniture that working on. And for them, every like the bases of the exhibit pieces for Mathematica are very much like the Eames Aluminum Group. They could apply these learnings in different ways, but I think it's because they had the space um, where they worked. They were always interested. I, now they also would often take an idea and first work just together themselves. I mean, mm. Charles came from uh, architecture and Ray from painting mm -hmm. and worked up at the Eames house, trying out these prototypes and often making like maybe the first hundred or so there, just the monks themselves experimenting with material, what it could or could not do, and then taking it to the office, making like 5,000 prototypes <laughs> right. for a chair. If it passes like the 5,000 tests, then they ship um, the pieces, you know, the, the prototypes to Herman Miller. But there's an important thing is, I. I think this is the part that just blows my mind is how observant that right. Ray and Charles were of the process of solving problems. And right. what I mean by that is that when they were making the prototypes for those very first chairs, they observed that how something is made influences design. And therefore they had to make not just the prototypes for the chairs, but the machines that made right. the prototype. Right. So by the time they got to 5,000, they were shipping also the machines that they had made so that Herman Miller could scale up to 100,000. <laughs> so let me ask you this, because you mentioned that there's not a lot of writing from them because so much of their thinking was done through their films. And they talked about the films as essays. They described them as yes. essays. What, did they think of a chair as an essay also? And, and if so, how, how, did that, how does that thinking sort of play out that way? It's more, th their question was actually, the questions I heard them talking about a chair, because they had jigs at the office, because they were always thinking of the best for the most for the least, the mm. best product for the most people for the least. So they were always testing like the height of the chair, the angle of the chair, 
how to do it better? Uh, does it need to swivel? Mm. Whatever. <laughs> but what they were always asking is, is the chair doing its job in 5, 10, 15, 25, 50 years? Mm. And that what, what they realized with that is the connections of the material become vital to understand. And so my mom actually in displaying chairs at the at the ranch and we're going to do this again was to look up at the bases mm. because if that base had broken you would have thrown away the chair right so how do you connect metal to wood and then you need rubberized shock mounts or you need like brackets and so ray and charles were always trying to reduce i think in some ways the number of connections because every connection could break right do you see right, so right. it's it's a way of like making it endure I also love with the chairs, like, okay, they, the initial wire rod chairs um, are covered in upholstery with a cloth edge. And, um, and then they make it what's affectionately called like the bikini pattern. Well, that's because only your back and your seat touch the chair and they can uh. bring that reduction in cost down to the consumer. Mm -hmm. So they were always trying to think of the consumer, like what was the best product that they could make? And that's why for me, it was a never ending process. I mean, they were working on furniture right up to their, the end of their days. Yeah. Uh, in my family, you don't retire, you just keep going. So, <laughs> right. but, but they also did that in other areas. I mean, we spoke before about education. Yeah. They were also very interested in exhibits and sharing and learning and connecting in that way. So it, 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 was, they, it was multifaceted. What's really interesting to me, especially in the context of this conversation, is mm -hmm. their output was so prolific and it was so varied. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, we've already been talking about furniture and, and and films, mm -hmm. you just mentioned the exhibitions, they were doing graphics, they were doing like all sorts of stuff. Um, how, what was the relationship or how did they think about the relationship between the sort of the problem and the solution or the idea and the artifact? You know, if they're thinking about some of these things and they're like, oh, this is a, the output of this thinking is a chair, which is different than right. the output of this thinking is an exhibition. Or a film. I think, I think what I've found is more um, in the example of like this thinking is in terms of a chair, but then it could also be applied to an exhibit piece. It can. Mm. I, I think one thing Ray and Charles said to all of us grandchildren, which was only share what you understand. <laughs> so they would really only until they understood a material, which is where you hear the expression honest use of materials, right. or if they understood a mathematical concept that they're gonna put in an exhibit for uh, for IBM. It was really having that deep understanding and making sure. Now, one thing I loved hearing from, from former staff that worked at the office was when Rand Charles came over to your desk, it wasn't to say, are you done yet? It was more, what did you find interesting? Mm. Because if you found that interesting, you probably wanted to know more and it's more um, came naturally uh, for that. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when I, when I look at the, what's in the collection, which I thought was going to be 20,000 objects, but it's probably going to be closer to 40,000 in, <laughs> in course, the end. Yeah. Because it's like, it's uh, another area we haven't even gotten to is also what they collected um, in trying mm. to understand uh, when they would visit other countries like Mexico or Japan, Russia, Germany, uh, that they would look at often toys uh, toys mm -hmm. are often, they said, preludes to serious ideas, right. but also there's many toys that are common across many, many cultures, most cultures, 
I would put in that category tops and kites, mm -hmm. but the materials might be slightly different. The mm -hmm. scale might be slightly different, but there is this, uh, and also things like that, objects like that are so well designed that you forgot they were designed, you right. know? So there's a honing of design in this object that you're actually, it's very playful and, and fun to, to handle. So I love that there's not one kite in the collections. There's hundreds of kites. There's hundreds of tops. And but then they would use them on the house of cards. Right. They would use them in an exhibit. And so what I have found, and you probably have heard me say, is that one object can tell many stories. Right. And that's what I love. It's a different kind of database than when I worked at MoMA, which was really basic information for each drawing, which was, you know, dimensions, materials, get a photographic, give it a number. Because I'm still doing what I always consider my job as chief curator, which is I call it the catch and release program. I am to catch the material, but release it in different ways. So it's shared, it's learned from, it's a working archive, a working collection. Let's go back to this idea of a working archive for a second, because I have, I have a sort of interesting um, thought here now that I'm sort of thinking about everything that we're talking about. Um, you know, because you're talking about this being being a working archive, you're talking about sort of telling the stories around these, you're talking about bringing the learnings from their work into the problems mm -hmm. and challenges of today. And one of the things that I find really fascinating, especially just based on the type of conversation we're having right now, is this sort of how multidisciplinary they were. Um, Charles mm -hmm. trained as an architect, Ray trained as a painter, but they made films and toys and furniture and, you know, all of these things. And Well, those can be learned. See, that's the thing. Right. Those can be learned. How to, but, but it's the way you take the photograph. It's, as Ray said, she never changed her palette. She said she never changed her palette. Mm. That, that what she was doing was still just a continuation of the painting that she had trained and, and done in her early years. It was just an extension of it. So that's how I think of these all as extensions. I, I do too. And I think like, I think that's what I want to hear you talk, talk more about actually, because I think like in some ways it is easier than ever to work across different mediums and disciplines. The technology mm -hmm. is so much more accessible. The tools are, uh, you know, easier to, to learn in, in many ways, in you know, some cases, not so much, but in, in many ways there's, um, but then in other ways, it's like a lot harder to actually sort of move between disciplines like that because of you know siloing and types of jobs there are and so how can you sort of talk about how we can sort of learn this from the eaves how they how they kept the palette regardless of what they were working on well i grew up and as i as i mentioned before charles passed away when i was 12 right. and in 1978 and we got to spend each of us lots of time being put in their short films i thought everyone's grandparents made movies like powers <laughs> of 10. Right. but in spending time he also knew from the other side of my family that i planned to be a, a bronze sculptor and i'm 11 years old and he tells me you need to be able to use every tool in your studio as well, if not better than the person you hire, or you won't know if they're doing a good job. Mm. And so what that told me was like, and they walked the walk, they right. could develop the photographs if someone was at the office, but they also, they, they said this, they liked working at a scale, usually like with designing a chair. It's very different than designing a building, mm -hmm. designing a chair, you can control all the parts. Mm -hmm. And so that was what that, that deep involvement 
is what I think makes some of their designs so successful today is because they were so rigorous in understanding how that design could be mass produced, how it was going to be used. And so I, I always considered part of what we're doing is like, Ray and Charles would also talk about if all you have in your toolbox is a hammer, right. you're going to solve every problem with a hammer, right. the law of the hammer. Right. So what I'm just trying to do is offer other tools that I've observed Ray and Charles had to solve problems. So it just adds to people's toolkit. And I love that. And what's interesting is like, I, I, it's, it's really more the approach. It's like seeing the situation and really making sure, I think it really comes back to understanding the need of what you're trying to accomplish. Now there's a great quote by Ray and Charles, which is about when you're designing a tool, you need to know what the tool's gonna do. <laughs> Right. Now, that's a really simple way of saying it, but it's important. Also, Ray and Charles, though, said, when you come up with a solution for something, it doesn't have to be that solution for that situation. It can inform the next solution, right. which is the iterative right. process. So when I think if, if, if I've been fortunate to be steeped in this for many, for all my life. Yeah. And so all I'm trying to share is the gleanings that I see as we are archiving and inventorying the material, which we're still going through and sharing like, wow, I now see this connection over here um, and, and it's available to everybody. I mean, I got to stand on the shoulders of giants. I want everyone else to have the view is how I express it. And that's what is that catch and release program that I talk about. I want to sort of, as we start to wrap up the conversation, turn this conversation back on you and your work and your oh, car boy. career a little bit, because it's it, what's really <laughs> yeah. interesting. We're, we're having this conversation about how everything connects, about how how solutions for one problem can be, you know, can influence another one. And you are trained as a bronze sculptor and you studied history at Yale, which on face value seem, you know, as different as designing a chair and making a film. How do those two <laughs> sides of your life and your sort of intellectual and creative life, how do those influence each other or, or connect to each other? Well, I think for me, what's great is I didn't know my grandparents were famous until practically Ray's last days. So I got to be around them. And I, as I said, in my family, nobody retires. You just right. keep working on to your last days. And so you see this passion and you see this enthusiasm for the problems that they were solving. And what was great is you, I got to see Ray and Charles learning the information and applying, okay, how to solve it in different ways. And there wasn't just one way to do it. There was multiple ways. And then there's this beautiful finished piece at the end, whether it's an exhibit, a chair, a film, but you got to see this process of the, and so what you realize, or what I realized, I can't speak for anybody else, is they would reveal a series of choices that they were making. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think one doesn't realize one has more choices than one thought. And uh. I feel like, I feel like from the earliest days, and you may have heard me tell this story before, but I'm often asked what my earliest memory or one of my earliest memories is spending time with Ray and Charles. Yes. And it's the boar yes. story, which you might know, but I want to share with your guests because it's really, it had a huge impact on me, which is going out to dinner with them, coming back to the office, walking with Charles and him asking what I thought of dinner. And I was about eight years old and it was borscht. And I love making borscht today. I didn't <laughs> like it back then. But so when he asked me what I thought of dinner, I said, I didn't like it very much. Well, he then looked at me and said, how would you have done things differently? Right. 
And I just looked at him and he's like, well, do you know what is in borscht? And I said, I didn't. And uh, he said, well, it's beets and potatoes and, and butter and onions. You could have separated the beets and just made mashed potatoes. And so we had this whole conversation of what other things we could have done with those ingredients. Then he asked me, why do you think the chef made it that day? Like, was it the only thing at the market? Mm -hmm. Is it a favorite dish? So then we had that whole conversation, but it made me look at borscht differently. And I actually felt very empowered. Like I felt heard, like it was okay not to like it, yeah. but what would I do differently? Yeah. Well, I shared that story with the docents um, when the exhibit was at the Oakland Museum. And one of the docents, when I was visiting the exhibit while it was there, came over to me and she said, Lisa, your story worked. And I said, great, how? She said, the next time my grandchildren complained about the salads I was making, I said, how would you do it differently? And she says, it turns out they don't like mushrooms. She's like, I don't care if they don't like mushrooms, they can have mushrooms another time. We now make the salad, everyone's getting what they want. She's like, that little twist yeah. of looking at differently, is it made all the difference. And so that's that, that those key moments also shaped me. Being around this material and thinking more and more, especially as we're applying at the ranch, a place where both my mother and I made our artworks, because my mom was an amazing designer herself, right. and built, baking our pieces, I've now thought of how to do my designs and sculptures in a more sustainable, thoughtful way. Mm. So maybe not using bronze, but maybe using found objects, maybe using um, tr wood, trees, I don't know, cast mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. in dirt play. And so uh, for me, that's been really exciting as we launched the Institute and sharing both online and in person, being able to think, wow, so I, I just find it really exciting because it's nothing set in stone. Everything's right. evolving. Right. Ray and Charles really, if there's something you might hear from all of us grandchildren is the most important thing is to be comfortable with change. Mm. And, and that is something that just keeps happening more and more quickly. But it's something that I, it really keeps you limber. Yeah. And Ray and Charles are very limble and nimble. I think of them being nimble, applying uh -huh. um, one thing to the next. Well, speaking of change, what is next for you? What is next for the Institute? What is on your mind right now as you look towards the future? Can you talk a little bit about, you know, you know looking on that horizon, thinking about that change in that future? Well, what's very exciting is, you know, we, we've grown to about 30 uh, people of three, 30 team members today, and we are working in different ways of sharing the collection, both online, in person, through publications. I think for us uh, during COVID and also uh, just when we launched a year and a half ago, it was important to realize not everyone may be able to come to California mm. and come come here. So how can we share these ideas and ways of Ray and Charles solving problems um, uh, through the online exhibits, but also in, in booklets or catalogs or such? But it's also, I love that in now that it's been over a year, we're hearing back from guests or visitors or mm. those who are enjoying what we're doing and you know what they wanna know more of, what are we doing next? And so for me, with the exhibits, it will continue to be what we were doing, which was as we are unpacking the boxes and looking at the material, how does that inform the existing collection? What's like, that's why we did Raise Hand. Mm -hmm. I mean, to, I think one of my favorite things with Raise Hand was the scale of the scaled model pieces, like of the packaging. And I could absolutely see how that could fit in her hand. Mm -hmm. Or when she did the arts and architecture covers. I love that we are also sharing that, you know, the early rebuses that Charles wrote 
to my mother or a painting that he did in his early days of St. Louis. And I think for those who might know of Ray and Charles as designers of furniture, it shows an expression that Ray and Charles had is like, it's not that you studied dance to solve the problem, but because you studied dance, you could solve the problem. Uh, Because they had all these experiences, it inf- that's what makes the work that they did so rich and there's still so much to learn for from and i'm just i this is the most exciting thing i've ever done is is launching the Eames institute with an amazing group of people um some who you whom you know because everyone's excited it's it's exciting to see what we're each learning and taking away and we have these channels where we're like hey did you see what collections team found here and like wait this is over here for a graphic for communications and for me this is not about looking at the past it's how to look at the future i think that is a great way to wrap up this conversation so i'm going to ask you the question that i used to end all of these what are you reading right now oh wow um, I well, right now I'm reading the Steinberg catalog that we just finished, <laughs> um, which I did that. Um, I often right now I, I it's probably because on Design Emergency they were talking about Paul Rand, oh, yeah. and so I was I was reading some books that I have in my library, just looking at those early graphics with IBM. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He, he, um, having gone to Yale, obviously huge influence, you know, to the graphic design. I mean, my parents made me major in anything but arts. <laughs> So I took a lot of art history, okay. design classes, everything, but it was wonderful. And so I feel, I, I love seeing how he communicated it um, through his books and through the lectures that he did. And so I was, I've just been revisiting some great graphics. Yeah, Lisa, thank you so much for this. The Charles and Ray have had a huge influence on my life. Probably the one of the first designers that I came across was, was the two of them back when I was in high school. And I am such a fan of what you are doing and how you are talking about their work and bringing their work um, into the future and in new and interesting ways. So thank you so much for, for being on the show. I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. And that was my conversation with the Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity's chief curator, Lisa Demetrius. This conversation was recorded on August 18th, 2023. Our theme music, our new theme music, Do You Like It?, is by former guest and friend of the show, Jeremiah Chu. The show is made possible because of Patreon supporters, so if you like what we're doing here, I hope you consider supporting us on Patreon to get bonus content each month. You can follow us on social media at Surface Podcast. You can listen to all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.